Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In each of our podcasts in this series, we've been lifting up the stone that is UK trade policy and examining what scuttles out from underneath. In today's podcast, we'll be examining that Cinderella of trade policy, the services sector. So often when people talk about trade, they're talking about stuff, things in containers that cross borders with varying degrees of bureaucratic friction. But what about if you want to sell an insurance policy abroad, or architectural or hairdressing services? How easy is it to do that? And how can trade agreements make it easier? Here in the UK, we're pretty good at selling services. Depending on how you measure it, services are generally reckoned to account for about 80% of the UK economy. And the UK financial services sector alone makes a contribution to the economy that's worth the equivalent of the entire GDP of Bulgaria and Croatia combined. So why do we hear so little about services in the context of the trade negotiations which are just getting underway with the EU and the US? Are we missing a trick here? Here on Trade Bites today, we have yet another stellar lineup of experts to shed some light on these important questions. I'm joined here in Brighton once again by Dr Ingo Borschert, Senior Lecturer at the University of Sussex and a Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Also with me is Julia Manton-Garrett, Research Assistant in the Economics of Brexit at the UK Trade Policy Observatory. And joining us on the line is Sebastian Bentz, Policy Analyst and Economist at the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Many thanks to all of you for joining us. So, Ingo, when we talk about services, what activities are we referring to and to what extent are they actually tradable? Yes, Chris, as you said, about 80% of income is generated by services is a consequence of the fact that as economies grow richer, an ever larger share of consumption shifts towards services. That could be anything from real estate activities, the retail distribution sector, and then financial insurance services and also healthcare. As you said, these things are tradable to a differential extent. Now, a big chunk is inherently untradable. For instance, chiefly real estate services or public administration or defense. But even the retail and wholesale distribution sector, which you might think is untradable, I think here in the UK, we all have done our groceries at Aldi or Lidl. And if these retailers come to the UK and set up shop, this is actually a form of services trade. And of course, you've already mentioned financial and insurance services, which account for about 7% each of gross value added in the UK economy. Here we are talking about 60 and 80 billion of worth of services. So these services are very well tradable. Okay, so when it comes to trade negotiations, Julia, how are these normally structured? There is a WTO agreement which regulates services, is there not? Yes, that's right. The General Agreement on Trade and Services, or GATS for short, is a multilateral agreement at the WTO. It entered into force in 1995 and it applies in principle to all services except for 
services supplied in the exercise of governmental authority and some air traffic rights. And what it tries to do is to provide legal certainty for services providers around the world to know what conditions they will face when they try to trade services abroad. So when we think about services trade under the GATS, we tend to talk about four different modes of supply. That's how four different ways of how services can be traded. So the first mode of supply is cross-border trade. So that you can think of something like an architect sending a design drawing via email to a customer abroad. Then we have the second mode of supply, which is consumption abroad. Here we can think about a French student traveling to the UK to study, or perhaps somebody from the UK going on holiday in Greece and consuming, going to restaurants and staying in a hotel in Greece, those kind of services. And then we have mode three, which is a commercial presence. So that's when companies establish affiliates or establish commercial presence in another country to provide services. Like Ingo said before, Aldi could be an example of that in the UK where we can go and shop at Aldi shops. The last mode of supply, um, fourth mode of supply, is when a supplier from a country travels to another country to provide a service there. So we could think of perhaps an engineer traveling abroad to assist on a construction project abroad. And those are the four modes of supply that the GATS is concerned with. And then there are two central obligations that countries sign up to in the GATS. That's called market access and national treatment. So market access covers a number of quantitative restrictions that should not be maintained for the service sector. So that's things like restrictions on the number of services suppliers or the value of service transactions. And then we have national treatment, which implies that any discriminatory measures that may favour domestic services suppliers in favour of foreign suppliers should not be maintained. So those are the two central obligations under the GATS, where countries commit services sectors, they commit to those two obligations under the GATS. Sebastian Bentz, these are the baseline commitments which all countries have committed to within the context of GATS. But is it possible to offer or trade uh, better commitments than these in the context of free trade agreements between two different trading partners? Yes, Chris, that is, of course, possible. And in fact, most modern FTAs concluded in the last couple of years they include provisions on services. And most often they include provisions on cross-border trade and services and on uh, investment, which is related to more three of services trade, which we have just heard about. But they can also include provisions on specific sectors, such as uh, financial services, telecommunications, transport, or also audiovisual services. Now, what is important here is that many of these FTAs do not actually liberalize the market access or national treatment in that bilateral relationship in the applied regime. But often those FTAs are used to bind the existing regime rather than creating additional liberalization. Now, in addition to FTAs, there can also other bilateral agreements, for example, uh, mutual recognition agreements on qualifications that are relevant for professional services, or air transportation agreement to grant bilateral access rights for air traffic. So there are plenty of opportunities for countries to liberalise their services regime bilaterally. Ingo, does the UK need to create its own multilateral commitments on services now that it's becoming an autonomous member of the WTO, or does that schedule actually already exist? It does already exist, Chris. The UK, even before exiting the European Union, has 
always been a member in the World Trade Organization in its own right. And recently it has filed its own schedules, which are based upon the EU's schedule with a number of technical clarifications where, for instance, the EU schedule would reference EU law or other member states that is, of course, no longer appropriate for the UK. And so so there are a number of technical modifications, which, however, leave the balance of rights and obligations that the UK assumes under this schedule essentially unchanged. So that's in place now. Okay. Of course, the UK has been part of a very large trade agreement for a long time, namely membership of the uh, European Union. Within the EU, has the UK enjoyed completely free access to services markets or are some areas still exempt even within the single market and, and where do these carve-outs lie? Well, let me make a start here. The, I think beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The EU single market for services is not as complete as the one for goods, but I think it has made a massive difference and is without doubt by far the most integrated area for services trade in the world. Now, of course, there are differences. The EU services directive, which came into effect nearly a decade ago in 2009, for instance, does not encompass financial services or healthcare. But at the same time, there's a raft of EU legislation that is sector-specific, for instance, the Lawyers' Establishment Directive or the Digital Single Market, which have, in their respective sector, greatly facilitated intra-EU services trade. There's also very noticeable progress within the EU single market for services in air transport or in maritime transport, which, as Julia said before, is largely outside the realm of multilateral trade negotiations anyway. In these areas, air transportation and maritime transport is one of the services sectors where the EU single market has made the biggest difference. The UK has a trade surplus in services overall with the EU27. Why is it that we've heard relatively little about services in the Brexit discussions so far, or the post-Brexit discussions, as I suppose we should call them now? Is it because services are such a nebulous concept and hard to get your head around compared with, you know, shipping a ton of lamb to, to France? Or why do you think it is that we hear so little about services trade? Well, I think to some extent it could be as simple as what you just said, that services trade is sort of a fuzzy thing to get your head around, whereas goods is very tangible and easy to understand. You know, if you drive a BMW in the UK, you can understand that that car has been imported. And it's also easy to understand if we put more taxes on that car, it will become more expensive to you. So trade in goods is sort of an easy concept, whereas services trade is more fuzzy and it's not very easy always to understand what will happen if we put more barriers to services trade in the same way. I think another reason is also that tariffs, which are, of course, something you apply on goods and not services, are also quite tangible. It's easy to understand if a trade agreement eliminates 95% of tariffs, that's a nice number. You can understand that. It's very difficult to produce similar numbers for services. It's difficult to summarise how much free trade agreements do for services trade. So that could be one reason why services trade has been talked about less. It is also the case that the kind of services trade policies 
are really a wild zoo, right? So we are talking anything from an equity limitation for a foreign bank to licensing conditions for a broadcaster to a labor market test for foreign professionals discharging their services abroad. So it's very, very difficult and varies greatly from sector to sector. And that is neither easily understood nor easily communicated. It is also true that in the range of professional business services, which itself is very heterogeneous and can encompass anything from the lawyers, the auditors, to management consulting. And it is one area actually where the UK exports most of its services in terms of value, close to 80 billion in 2017. This is a very mixed bag of sectors. There are low regulation sectors in there, such as tourism and management consulting, which I suspect people believe will largely take care of themselves. But at the same time, there are also high regulation intensive sectors in there, such as legal advice or architectural services and so on, and financial services, civil aviation, where the exit from the single market will considerably reduce the exporting opportunities. And just one final point to add there. I think there is also this misconception that perhaps the single market hasn't done so much for services as it has for goods. And therefore, it might not be as important for services trade to be in the EU or it might not be as detrimental for services trade to exit the EU. But I think, as Ingo has already outlined, the single market has actually done a lot for services trade within the EU. And actually, Sebastian has done a great deal of work of that. Maybe, Sebastian, you want to chip in briefly on the difference between services trade within the EU and outside the EU? Yes, happy to do that. So I agree with what has been said already by Ingo and Julia. And just adding to this on the complexity of talking about services regulation, there has been lots of work done and this work continues here at the OECD, at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, to measure and quantify services trade regimes of OECD member countries. And we have tried to quantify multilateral services regimes of all OECD countries. And also uh, we've tried to quantify the restrictiveness of the EU single market. So with that tool, it is possible to actually get an impression of how much the UK stands to lose from losing access to the single market. And now the only challenge is to bring this information to those people who then are going to make the decisions to the uh, policymakers and negotiators. So let's talk about these forthcoming UK-EU free trade agreements. We're at the beginning of that process, but both sides have published their mandates, their negotiating objectives. What can we say so far about how closely aligned the objectives of the two sides are on services and where are the points of contention most likely to lie? Well, alignment, I think, is one of these red lines here in the UK. So they are not very much aligned at the moment, these negotiating mandates, which, you know, to be fair, is not very surprising. The UK's mandate is far-reaching, but also aspirational and, in a sense, vague. It would often say, in services, it should provide for balanced and reciprocal market access for cross-border services trade. But it doesn't say reciprocal binding obligations. So there is this recurring emphasis on retaining regulatory independence. Now, services trade does thrive off, you know, an agreement on common rules. So how this pans out will remain to be seen. If we look at the EU's mandate, it says, for instance, audiovisual services should be excluded. And on air traffic rights, some elements of fifth freedom provisions might be considered and financial services should be on the basis of unilateral equivalence frameworks. And, you know, this is deliberately already bringing some of this jargon 
to the air. But you know what you can glean is that the language is much more specific. And there's a wide gulf currently between the UK's mandate and the EU's mandate. But of course, at the moment, both sides try to stake out their position. And, you know, we'll see how that develops. And the UK, of course, is very strong in the area of financial services. And the City of London contributes a huge amount to the UK's overall economy. What do we think is likely to be the outcome? Because at the moment, financial services providers have a kind of a thing called a passport, don't they? Which entitles them to operate throughout the European Union. So is that passporting facility going to be retained? And if not, what difference is it going to make? My hunch is that the passporting is essentially off the table. I think about a year ago, the UK had sought access for its financial services in the UK on a mutual recognition basis, which is basically passporting. It's now been acknowledged even in the UK's negotiating mandate, I believe, that that will shift towards an exchange of financial services on the basis of equivalence. Equivalence is quite narrowly defined for certain financial products. There's no right to obtain an assessment or a positive outcome of such equivalence on the part of the EU, and it could be revoked at rather short notice. The problem here for the City of London, I believe, is that there are currently certain areas such as wholesale banking and some elements of asset management which are currently outside the remit for which the Commission could even grant equivalence. So there's a big chunk of business out there for which the Commission currently cannot even start an equivalence assessment. And so it would seem that if UK providers wanted to continue providing these kind of services, they would potentially need to relocate headquarters within the EU single market. And that would have certain implications for the loss of tax revenue in the UK and also a considerable amount of jobs potentially. And I'll just add something to that because the UK seems to be using the the EU-Canada trade agreement as a basis for many of, of the kind of trade agreement that it wants in the future. In that sort of agreement, especially for cross-border trade in financial services, it's very, very limited. There are very few services that are committed to be traded cross-border, both for insurance and financial services in the EU-Canada trade agreement. And there's nothing like passporting in that agreement. So if that was the basis and we didn't have this sort of equivalence, then cross-border, particularly trade in financial services, would be very limited. Sebastian, is the EU unique in the degree of integration of regulations on services? Are there any other trade agreements around the world which have a comparable degree of regulatory integration? Yes, I would definitely say the EU is unique in that sense. Not only judging from the level of integration, but also judging from the institutions that are in place, like the European court system, there are other bilateral relationships which are relatively deep on services. For example, Australia and New Zealand have a relatively deep relationship, but uh, far less um, advanced than the European Union. So this is definitely something that has uh, contributed a lot to European integration and services integration and has created uh, welfare gains in uh, all European countries. Now, of course, as we've already mentioned, the rules for services require domestic regulation to enforce them. 
and all sorts of different government ministries and regulatory agencies need to be involved. So there is a scattering of competencies across the instruments, the levers of government. How does that affect the political economy, if I put it that way, of the discussions in this area? Presumably this makes negotiating services deals that much more complicated for the governments involved. It does make it more complicated. There are a couple of different points. One is the practical difficulties of cross-government coordination that you alluded to, Chris. The main levers of services trade policy, unlike tariffs, do not typically reside within the trade ministry. In the UK, that would be the Department for International Trade. For telecommunication services, you might have an independent telecoms regulator in the UK, that's Ofcom. In financial services, you have various actors which are partly institutionally independent. The Bank of England has a part to play in the supervisory regulation of banks, as has the Financial Conduct Authority. So it requires an enormous amount of cross-government coordination. And against that backdrop, it is much more difficult to trade off one sector against another, commitments and liberalizations in one sector against another, and it requires a high political will and political capital to make that happen. One quite telling example of how difficult it can be, because exactly like Ingo said, services liberalization is all about regulations. And I think one quite telling example that I came across, again, when I was looking at the EU-Canada trade agreement is an Austrian restriction on legal services, which has a legal base that base that goes back to a regulation from 1868. So that sort of says something about how deeply rooted these regulations can be and how difficult it can be to then to change them to liberalise services. There's increasingly a focus on the digital economy but when talking about uh, services and, and in many other respects as well. How open is digital trade? Are there particular problems with digital trade or or trade in digital services that need to be addressed? And is trade in e-commerce and so on being addressed within the the framework of the World Trade Organization? So, of course, digitization has changed the way uh, services are traded and it has changed or increased the tradability of a large group of services. So services can now be traded that could not be traded in the past. And examples include, for example, professional services, but also finance, also education or health services, where information can be digitally transmitted and sent around the globe digitally. Now, there are potentially, there can be limitations also on digital services trade and on digital trade in general. For example, at the WTO, At the moment, a very important discussion is on the moratorium on uh, customs duties on electronic transmissions so that countries do not uh, levy customs duties on electronically transmitted goods and services. Just to briefly interject here, this is absolutely right, Sebastian. Now, one sad piece of news is that after nearly 20 years of discussions at the WTO, we still even have a definition of what an electronic transmission is, on which then to not levy taxes. So, you know, e-commerce is very, very important and it's gaining in importance, as you said. It's not well dealt with at the WTO. I think it's one of these examples where areas such as financial services or cross-border data flows, which are often regulated and negotiated separately, indirectly have a big effect on 
services trade? Services often need people to deliver them, notwithstanding, obviously, the rise of digitization. It's very hard to get a digital haircut, for example, from a, a digital hairdresser. So if people are needed to deliver services and if these services are to be traded, how does that fit in with the UK's new approach to immigration? Are there issues here? Are there conflicts which need to be addressed? You're alluding to a proposed new immigration scheme, Chris. Let me clarify briefly that when natural persons are service suppliers go to another country and discharge their services, as Julia was describing earlier, they do so on a temporary basis. And then that's what we call mode four. There are barely any restrictions in any country's GATS schedule at the WTO. So mode four is essentially unrestricted. And in so far, there is not a legal contradiction between mode four and this new proposed approach to immigration here in the UK, which seems to be tilted very much towards high-skilled immigration. These people would come to the UK, a certain group of people would be allowed to come more easily to the UK if they satisfied certain requirements, but they would then come permanently, potentially with full access to the labor market. This is not what mode four is. I think a lot of services sectors, especially the high-skilled ones, such as auditing, legal advice and so on, do rely on this quick, what they call fly-in, fly-out basis of service professionals. And to what extent that will be possible in the future will remain to be seen. So I agree that there is a big difference between mode four services trade and full access to the labor market. So there does not seem to be um, a big conflict here. But there is also an uh, sort of overlap between services trade and uh, access to the labor market, but that's maybe more related to more three services trade, the commercial presence of foreign enterprises, uh, where foreign multinationals might want to bring in intra-corporate transferees from their home countries. And those people would stay in the country for a longer time than just a few days or a few weeks or a few months. They might stay for several years, and that would have to be seen how that fits in with the proposed changes in the UK. One final question, just to sort of wrap the, the discussion up. The UK likes to see itself as a sort of bastion of, of, of openness when it comes to trading. I'm just wondering what the UK can offer its trading partners if it wants to improve its access to other countries' services industries in the context of free trade agreements with the United States or with Australia, New Zealand, with any of the other countries with which it's committed to negotiating new FTAs. How well-placed is the UK to expand its trade-in services around the world as a result of the new freedom of operation that it has post-Brexit? The UK is very successful in exporting services, but it is also the case that services exports are at the moment pretty concentrated and focused towards EU markets. About 40% of British services exports go to the EU market the one country that is the clear number two is the United States, where about 22% of British service exports go. And then it pretty 
quickly tails off. About 2.5% go to Japan, 2.5% go to Australia, New Zealand, and 1.5% go to China. So even if the UK was able to strike services-related deals with these countries, the US, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, it would need to make a pretty hefty impact just to make up for any incremental loss of market access that comes about by leaving the EU single market for services, just because of the arithmetic. And then, of course, you could, what I guess I shouldn't do, you could well speculate about what the quid pro quo might be. And I think for some of these countries that are high on the UK's agenda for striking FTAs, it is pretty obvious what it is. In the United States, which is a by far largest single country as a destination for British services exports, it could be agriculture and it could be healthcare that the U.S. have offensive interests in. At the same time, financial services, which the U.K. is very good at producing and exporting, is a complete no-go likely for the U.S. The U.S. was responsible for pulling financial services out of the then Trans-Pacific Partnership. And so it's, it's not that straightforward to see what the deal would be. Australia is a fiercely competitive agricultural exporter. So to what extent that goes down well in the UK is also not clear. And if you went to India and asked them what they wanted from the UK, the number one answer is, of course, more visas. Yes, I agree with what Ingo has said on the potential for the UK to compensate with new agreements with other countries for what they are potentially going to lose in market share in the European Union. And maybe just adding to this, the UK services regime as we have uh, quantified it in the uh, OECD Services Trade uh, Restrictiveness Index, it is, in fact, one of the most liberal of the OECD members. Uh, so the UK is among the 10 most liberal countries, but not significantly more liberal than other large EU members, such as Germany or France, and also similarly liberal as Australia, Canada, or Japan. So the UK certainly is a liberal country when it comes to services, but it does not stand out as the most liberal country. Which means that, of course, the UK has many things that it can offer in future services deals. But as Inga Hoss already explained, all the potential partners with which the UK might strike agreements, they have their own interests. And this, in some cases, it might be very difficult for the UK to make those concessions to those partners. As always, it's not going to be straightforward. There we have to leave it. So it only remains for me to say thank you to our guests, to Sebastian Bentz, to Julia Mansorn-Garrett, and to Ingo Borschert. And as always, many thanks to all of you for listening in. Now that was the last in our current series of Trade Bites podcasts. It's been a pleasure talking with so many knowledgeable guests. I hope you have learnt as much as I have. Maybe we'll do it all again one day. But in the meantime, goodbye and thanks for listening to Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.